Thank you, Pastor Justin. Thank you, choir. Thank you, church, for engaging in worship with us. We truly do serve a great Lord. John chapter 17. As we are at part 7. Yes, it does say part 7. That's accurate. Okay. We did the... uh, we counted through and made sure we were right on the, the number. Part 7 of the Lord's other prayer that we're looking at <clears throat> from John chapter 17. I certainly pray this has been a blessing um, to go through with you. That you've seen the beauty and depth of uh, Christ as we examine his word. We're coming this morning to verses 14 and 19 um, of John chapter 17. And so... Uh, let's read the life-giving word of our living God. Jesus is praying in his high priestly prayer, and this is what he's saying, speaking to his disciples. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Remember, the disciples are terrified here. They're struggling, they're wrestling, knowing Jesus is about to go away from them. And this is what Jesus prays over them. John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19. Jesus says, I've given them your word and the word has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do consider ourselves grateful here this morning to be able to sit under the word of God being proclaimed and preached. Lord, I, be, I ask that you'd be with me as, uh, Lord, I uh, bring the word this morning, that this would not be um, Cody Page's worship service, but this would be your church's worship service focused on you, Lord, that we would engage together uh, through your word, uh, through the intentiveness and through, uh, Lord, just the interaction and fellowship that we get to take part of uh, when your word is brought to our ears. So, Lord, may we seek such value uh, in all of our, our um, ability to worship this morning, whether it be through the word read or through the word sung or through our children's time and f- investment into families, and, and yes, even this, mostly this, the word of God proclaimed and preached. And so, Father, we ask that you'd be with us, that you'd help our ears to hear, um, and that our hearts to be open to receive this world and to receive it gratefully. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And so this morning, we are picking up where we really left off last week. Uh, Jesus continues on in his high priestly prayer here. And as he does, he turns his thoughts towards the means of holiness and sanctification. Christ's church is to be holy. Christ's church is to be set apart from the world for or unto Jesus Christ. That means that God has chosen to sanctify his bride, the church, through his holy scriptures. 
the more uh, that Christ church gives herself to studying and living in light of the holy scriptures, the more holy she will become. The more holy she becomes, the more glorified God will be. So uh, holiness or sanctification and is it's an extremely important subject uh, that we'll see this morning. So much so that Jesus commits this matter uh, with prayer. And so this is what he's praying for. And I want you to remember the context of where the disciples of Christ are here. Remember, they are terrified of what's to come because God has already said that there are going to be troubles that they face in this world. And so through this text and through this study in your notes, you see, we have two main troubles that the disciples face uh, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so beginning with verse 14, let's read together and consider the first one here this morning. I have given them your word, Jesus says, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Here we see really the, the first instrument we will face, the first difficulty, trouble we will face as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we probably know it all too well. It is the hatred of the world. We face the hatred of the world. You ever wonder why the world hates Christians? You ever thought about why the world hates Christians? Why the world hates the church so much? It seems like every time we turn on the news, uh, believe it or not, there are, are groups or people out to just destroy Christianity uh, in, in itself. I believe there's two reasons for this. I believe uh, it's because, first of all, we've been given the word of God. Uh, the reason the world hates us so much is because you and I, as Christ Church, have been given the word of God. You might wonder, why would that be a cause for anyone to hate us? Why would us receiving the word of God uh, be, given, uh, be a reason for someone to hate us? But it's not just that we've been given the word of God. Rather, it's because of what the word of God teaches what this word we've been given says about their lives, about who they are, and about who we are. It's the effect that the word of God has in our lives uh, that makes them, makes the world hateful toward Christ in his church. Uh, keep in mind, let's think about what the scriptures principally teach. They teach what man is to believe concerning God and what responsibility God requires of man. So for starters, in a world that prefers relativism over absolutes, it's no great surprise that we would be hated for claiming that we have, that we know to tr some absolute truths about God. They would be bothered by that. They're even more bothered by the fact that, they would, that we would dare to believe that God just might have a standard of righteousness that he requires every human being to live by. That irks them. This is something the world does not like to hear. You remember how it was that Herod had a hatred in his heart for John the Baptist? Do you remember why he hated him? We're actually told why in Mark chapter 6 verse 20. The Bible says, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Herod hated John the Baptist because he was a righteous and holy man. The world hates righteousness and the world hates a standard of holiness. You remember as well how Nebuchadnezzar persecuted Daniel and his friends. Why did he do that? 
because they refused to bow their knee to worship a false God. They chose to obey God rather than man, and Nebuchadnezzar persecuted them for their obedience to God. The world hates righteousness, and it hates people who live according to that righteousness. Of course, along those same lines, Peter and John and and some others encountered the same thing when they were persecuted and beaten even for not obeying man, uh, but obeying God. They were proclaiming God even when the civil authorities told them not to do it. And they were hated and persecuted for obeying God. One last example comes to mind, it's uh, Ephesians. Uh, it, how it is the Christians were hated in the city of Ephesus. If you've ever studied that book, they were hated because as Christians shared the absolute truth about God's word, it actually started to have an impact on the idol makers within that city. People were losing business because they made idols and the effect the word of God had on Christians was they were no longer buying these idols. It was changing the culture even. The world doesn't like it when people start to live by God's standard because it affects their agenda and it rocks their comfortable boat. They don't like that. They like things to keep going away from God. They are happy with that projection. But when people start to be affected by the word of God, when they have their hearts changed by the word of God, they swing back to being obedient to God's word. It causes an absolute uproar. It causes the world to react. And at the end of the day, the point is people don't like to be told the truth. You know, you ever hear somebody say that? I'm... I just like it the way it is. I like for you to tell me things the way they really are. That is true maybe to an extent on most people, but if you really get honest, you can find their buttons pretty quickly, can't you? Uh, You can find some truths that they may not like to hear very quickly. People specifically don't like to be told that they are sinners. They don't want to be told that it's not okay for them to remain in their sinful condition. They certainly don't like it to be told that there is only one way for them to have their sinful condition remedied, which we know is by calling out to the Lord Jesus Christ. The world doesn't like the idea of being told what to believe or how to live. That's something that it's even instilled within our young ones in a very early age, isn't it? To reject authority and leave me to myself, I'll live however I want. I'm the rule maker. And so the world hates us because in essence we have the world of God. But secondly, the world hates us because we are not of this world. This is something we've seen in our study of John. The world hates us because we are not of this world. Because we're not like them. We don't fit in with them, or we ought not fit in with them. And because of that, they despise our Christianity. See, church family, the truth is, the more we live in light of God's word, the more unlike the world we will be. So the more different we are from the world, the more we'll be hated. There's a cause and effect there. The more we stick to God's word, the more we live in accordance with God's word, the more we will be like Christ. And the world will hate us just like they hated Christ. As John says in John 15, 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. 
If you're not like the if you are like the world, the world will receive you and love you with open arms. But if you love Jesus, they will turn from love to hatred very quick. They will have no place for you at all. Now I want you to know something, please. Even though this enmity does exist between the world and the church, that this does not mean that we as God's people are to be actively stirring up hatred toward us. Uh, Nor does it mean that we should pat ourselves on the back even when we have caused the world to hate us even more than it does. Just because we've been rude or obnoxious or taunted their hatred. There's nothing special about that at all. In fact, it's wrong. As Christians, we ought not go out of our way to cause offense to the unbelieving world. I want you to think about that. That's the truth. The fact of the matter is, this will be something that comes naturally as we live for Christ. We, we don't need to stir up in this any more than it already exists as we pursue Christ. In fact, not only should we be looking to drum up uh, the hatred of the world, we should not be doing that, but the scriptures even instruct us to go out of our way to live at peace with all men. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, 18. This is where he says, if possible, listen to this phrase, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You know that qualifier there, right? In Paul's remarks. So far as it depends on you, we should live at peace with all men. Of course, we know in saying that there is much that does not depend on us. For instance, we cannot change what God's word says. As Christians, we cannot change what God's word says. We cannot change the fact that we are called by God to live in light of his holy instruction. It is not up to us to alter God's word to make it more palatable to the world. Nor is it our prerogative to pick and choose which of God's commandments we are going to obey at any given time just so we don't give offense to our neighbor. Those are things that are not options for us to do as God's people. We must obey God at all times. If our obedience will disrupt the peace, then that's the way it has to be. But that said, insofar as it depends upon us, we ought to strive to live peaceably with all men. Well, then Jesus moves on now in his prayer, uh, looking at the second trouble we'll face his disciples here in verses 15 and 16. In verses 15 and 16, this is what Jesus says about uh, our other trouble in this world. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So the two sources we face in trouble in this life as Christians are, one, the hatred of the world that we just looked at, but also the schemes of the evil one. Those are the two things, the schemes of the devil. The two troubles we face in this life as God's people. Two very real and very present dangers for us. But despite the reality of this persecution and the danger that comes with it, you'll notice what Jesus prays. Because let's be honest, so far this 
this sermon kind of matches the weather, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, this is kind of cold stuff. I, I wanted to get some warmth in here. And so far, we've learned that the troubles we'll face as Christians and that the world essentially will despise us as we pursue Christ and that we now face a very admirable foe. So, so what, is, what is the answer here? What is Jesus praying for here? That we would just be terrified and continue to feel frigid in this world? No, look at what he says. He does not pray that we should be taken out of of the world. That's not his answer or his solution for us. Rather, what does he pray? He prays that the Father would keep us from the evil one, to keep us in the world, but from the evil one. Now, it's very interesting that Jesus prays this way, isn't it? I mean, one would think that in light of the trouble that the disciples would face, that Jesus might go on to pray just for them to be removed from the world. After all, I mean, Moses, Elijah, and Jonah, they all prayed along those same lines. They wanted to be removed from this world, especially in light of the persecution that they faced. The church family, I want you to hear something. This is not what the Lord has for us. His desire for us is to be in the world, but not of the world. His desire for us is to be protected by the Father while we are in this world. So Jesus specifically says that he does not pray that we should be taken out of the world, and that still stands for his disciples today. This prayer still rings true. It still has application for the people of God in our day. God has a purpose for you being in his world. He has things for us to do. He would have us to serve him in this world. If that were not the case, then he would have already brought us out of this world to be there with him now. So one day, one extra day of life for you, God has a purpose in it. Every day of your life serves God's purpose. And you can look to this particular verse to know that to be true. If God has not taken you out of this world, then he still must have a purpose for you being in this world. God has purposely placed us in his world. And what purpose is that for? Well, it's, it's simple. It's to be his witnesses, to advance his kingdom here on earth. God's will for his church is for her to live in this world. And not only that, the Lord wants his church to be actively engaged in this world. And how does he want us to be engaged in this world? Well, two things he has purpose for us here. God has purpose for his church, for God's church, not to isolate themselves from the world. That's the first thing we see here. That's not what we are supposed to do. We are not supposed to isolate ourselves from the world because we may be hearing this and thinking, okay, well, that's simple. The monks had it right. The Amish know what they're doing. The Mennonites, we're going to go join them. We're going to go get a ranch, go just uh, stop having uh, electricity and Wi-Fi. Forget it. It's of the devil. And we're going to be separate of this world. We're going to live together with horse and buggies uh, just like they did back in those days, apparently. And we're going to grow really awesome beards like Brother Justin. That's just what we're going to do, right? That's not what he means here, except for the beard thing. That's actually debatable. Um, here's what he means. Our Lord does not intend for us to go live as a bunch of monks in some monasteries somewhere far apart from the people of this world. 
In fact, look at verse 18 of John chapter 17 and see what he says. Jesus is clear here. He says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Being sent implies that there's a mission to accomplish, doesn't it? That's what he says. Jesus was sent into the world to fulfill a mission, and likewise, you and I are in this world to fulfill a mission. We are in this world because we have been sent to continue the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we've been saved by Jesus, not just for us to get a quick one-way ticket to paradise, but in order to serve him. Even as Jesus came into this world, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we as Christians are called to offer our lives as living sacrifices to God in the service of Jesus. We are called to carry on that work that is still yet to be completed. Jesus is still at work in and through us, his church, in the world. We are here to advance the kingdom of God on earth. And friends, in order to do this, we must be actively engaged with the world. We cannot be faithful in carrying out this mission if we isolate ourselves from the world. This is a point of application for many within Christ church. And I include myself in this. It's so easy for us to seclude ourselves and our families from everything related to the world. Now, I, I know it's tempting, right? It's tempting to want to live your life in such a way to keep yourself out of the world, but that's not what the Lord would have us to do. Again, we are to be in the world, just not of it. See, many Christians, when you think about it, they plan out their weeks that we almost never have to leave the comforts of the church. We send, our, we send our kids to Christian schools or we homeschool and then we spend time with each other and have play dates with other Christians. We play sports with Christian organizations and then we go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays. And with a, with a schedule like that, it's possible to have very little and perhaps no contact at all with any lost people in any given week. Now, now, don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that the way that we resolve all of this is just simply to send our kids to everything in the world or go hang out with bar, at bars and nightclubs to interact with the world more. That's not what I'm saying. That's not the application here. But I would suggest that we consider some creative ways to include interacting with the world on a regular basis. Here's some suggestions. We could simply spend time getting to know our neighbors better. I think that's something in my generation, maybe with the social media aspect, that we've completely lost. We can talk to people halfway around the world, but oftentimes we don't know our next door neighbors. It used to be that way. Okay, here's an option. Walk outside. Uh, okay, you're baking cookies, whatever, for your family. You don't need all them cookies, all right? You don't need every one of those cookies. You can actually give some to your neighbor. Just knock on the door say, hey, hope you're not uh, allergic to gluten or anything. Here are some free cookies, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm Cody. We live next door. I just want to let you know I'm here for it. Get to know your neighbors. It could be somewhat simple like that. How about this? We can become more involved in our communities. I love the fact that our, our, our uh, kids' choir is taking part in the Christmas parade this year. What a tremendous opportunity we have to interact with the world for the sake of the gospel. 
We could find opportunities to volunteer in various capacities. Maybe we could sign up to coach a a team sport or or to tutor or something like this in order to have more regular interaction with the lost. Folks, listen to me. We are here for the very purpose of bringing glory to God. And one of the ways to glorify God is to be active in this world. We are not to live our lives in such a way that we hide our candles under a basket. We are supposed to live in such a way that people see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We're supposed to live our lives in front of a watching world. Now that said, not only must we not isolate ourselves from the world, the second warning here is that We must also be careful not to assimilate ourselves with the world either. See the balance here? (laughs) Uh, The purpose that we have for being in the world is for God's church not to assimilate themselves with the world. One danger is to isolate ourselves. The other danger is to become too much like the world to the point where we've become indistinguishable from it. That's a huge error. And we must guard against both of these extremes. Jesus prays for the Father to keep us from the evil one. And no doubt, this is a reference to Satan, obviously. In another place in 1 John 5, 19, John says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. While we live in this world, we are faced with constant danger. The danger being that the evil one might do something to God's church, to God's people. Friends, Satan is a real being. He is a real enemy and he is quite powerful. If we are not to be on guard, Peter would not have warned us that he is like a roaring lion prowling about seeking those he can devour. Now listen, certainly he is a created being. He's a limited being in what he is able to do directly himself, but we know that he doesn't do all of his work by himself. That's what makes him so powerful. He works in and through demons as well as people outside of Christ. He has an army at work at all times rushing against the gates of the church. Now, friends, we know we have the promise that he will never prevail, but that does not mean that he can't do any damage. You see, everybody serves a master. You either serve God or you serve Satan. There is no middle ground in choosing sides when it comes to this great war that we face. Jesus said, you were either for me or against me. Those outside of Christ are servants of their father, the devil. Satan is more than willing to put them to work in helping him get the church to assimilate with the world. And friends, he does that in many different ways. He's powerful and left to ourselves, we would be defenseless against him. We would have no hope, no shot of standing against him. His goal is to tear down the church and to keep the sons of disobedience under his reign. And let's be honest, one of the most effective ways for him to accomplish this goal is to get the church to assimilate with the world. That's how he accomplishes this goal. How has this happened? Well, I think there's, there's a couple ways. I, I had a list of these I had to cut out, but there are two that I think we need to look at in our churches today. One is by sending wolves in sheep's clothing into the church. In this way, He has been able to influence portions of people within the church. 
by dressing up liberal scholars in Christian clothing and placing them in academic institutions, he's done a great harm to the work of the church. He knows, as we all do, if you get control of the institutions, it will have far-reaching implications as it already has. Consider how many denominations who were faithful to the Lord even just 20 to 30 years ago that have gone completely liberal. They have denied the gospel. They've given it up altogether. How do you think that happened? Wolves in sheep's clothing. People who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ truly coming into our institutions, our colleges, our churches, our seminaries, and corrupting the truth of God's word with lies. It's through the work of Satan that some have fallen, and, and therefore they, the first attack is always on the word. They've given up their inerrancy and infallibility belief of scripture. It is through his work that we now have people within the churches teaching false doctrines concerning the days of creation, people believing in things like theistic evolution, that death could have existed even before the fall. Some are even denying that there was ever a global flood. Where do those thoughts come from? They come from the world. They come from people who do not take the scriptures at face value to be inerrant and to be true who would give you some complex argument as to why you should not understand that Bible the way it easily reads to the reader. And they do this all under the guise of knowledge, under the false label of some, what some would call knowledge. And there are plenty of people who fall for this stuff because of so-called experts feeding it to them. So again, with the church assimilates with the world, whatever is going on out there if that is assimilated with the church, this is what we'll see. Secondly, sadly, this is evidence as well in some of the ways we view things in the church, like the subject of divorce. Let me just be careful here, but let me say this. These days, it's not uncommon to hear of Christians getting divorces for the very same unbiblical reasons as unbelievers do. All it takes is for one within a marriage to come to the conclusion that they are no longer happily being married to their spouse. One spouse claims that the other isn't no longer meeting his or her needs. One of them just says, I'm, I'm no longer in love. One spouse all of a sudden becomes sick and needs to be cared for, but the other's too selfish to take care of him or her, so they leave. Where does this mentality come from? It comes from the church behaving like the world. It comes from the church assimilating with the world. Well, if the church were left to herself, things would look very bleak, wouldn't they? And, and we would be without hope in this world. But thanks be to God as we remember last week that Jesus Christ continually prays for those who are his. And in his prayer, we learn about where we should turn in order to move forward without becoming isolationist or assimilationist with the world. In this prayer, we learn not only are we to be in the world, but not of it, but we also told about the means God uses to sanctify his church. Look what, look what Jesus prays in verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them, he says, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves might also be sanctified in truth. 
In light of the the hatred that we face from the world and the devil, Jesus prays that his church would be sanctified or set apart from the world unto God. And the means that God uses, our defense here, the means that God uses to sanctify his church is his word. The means that God uses to sanctify us is his truth and in particular his word of truth. The only way for us to have any hope not to walk in isolationism or to uh, assimilationism is to turn to the word of God. The word of God is the means that God uses to sanctify us, to set us apart from the world. So friends, whenever we approach a subject, whenever we're coming to a subject, we must approach that subject in light of what God's word has to say about it. If we want to know how God would have us to worship, to evangelize, to vote, to govern his church, to run our homes, whatever we desire to do, the word of God must be central in our thinking. It governs everything. His word is to be the final authority in all matters of faith and life. We must remember we have have two powerful enemies at work against us, the world and the devil. But we also must remember that greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. These enemies we know are held in check by our Savior. They will not accomplish any more than what they are given permission to do. But even in that, our Savior has provided us with the means to fight these enemies. By giving us his holy word, Jesus has provided us with a weapon more powerful than any enemy we might face in this life. The only way for us to use this weapon properly is to know it. The more we know it, the more sanctified we will be. The more ready for battle we will be when we encounter these enemies. But friends, it's not enough just to know it. We must also live it. See, the war we wage is a spiritual one. And therefore, as the scriptures tell us, our our weapons are not carnal. The weapons of our warfare are God's word and prayer. The word of God lived out by the church and prayer, our own prayers, as they are sanctified by the high priest, Jesus Christ. They are our defense and deliverance given in the various battles. So, So the way to not fall into isolationism is to realize we've been set apart to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ, to complete the work he has begun. And friends, the way to not be assimilated with the world is to do what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In order not to think like the world, our minds need to be transformed by the word of God. When our minds are transformed, the the more it will bear fruit in our lives. The more we know of God's word, the more we will know how to do things in keeping with his word. Friends, Jesus is concerned for his church. He is praying for his church at all times that she would be sanctified. This very prayer is encouraging because it reminds us that Jesus is active within his church. 
He's causing her to be conformed more and more to that glorious image that is presented to us within the scriptures. The church is to be always reforming. She is changing, becoming more and more faithful to God's word. The more the church is like what we see in the scriptures, the more encouraged we should be. I'm going to end with a conclusion here because I think it's a helpful one. I was, um, was 13 years old and I was invited to a friend's birthday party. Uh, and one of the things I did not pay attention to or know was that this friend was having a paintball themed birthday party. It was back in the age where everybody had paintball guns, right? That shot paintballs. Um, and if you've ever been hit by a paintball, it's relatively painful. Now, being the only kid at this birthday party without a paintball gun, I thought maybe I'd be spared from the paintball game of capture the flag that was going to happen in that particular birthday party. I was not. Uh, and succumbing to peer pressure and thinking that I'm, I'm tough, I thought maybe what I could do is just be the runner, right? Uh, have a couple guys around me uh, without weapons and I could just hide behind them and then I could just go run and capture the flag when they were not looking and just be kind of, you know, a little bit of a Rambo in that scenario, okay? Just, you know, if I didn't need be, I'll just break a paintball gun with my bare hands, it'll be fine. Uh, and what happened was I went to school the next week with whelps all over my body, right? Um, uh, because I did not have a weapon and because there was many points at the time where I just hit the floor as soon as I got hit with a paintball and then whack, whack, I was shown mercy with two more paintballs uh, into the fatty chubby areas, which pretty much are everywhere for me. So, uh, and, uh, so in that, I, I recognized that in the midst of the battle, it's not very successful to not have a weapon. And, and I, I feel like the reason I need to say that, church, is because I, I feel like we need to know every day that we are in a battle. And every day that you are not reading, thinking upon, dwelling upon the weapon that God has given us, you are going into a battlefield weaponless. Do not be surprised if you take your whelps. As God's child, who has been set apart from this world that the world hates or that the devil is after, if you go weaponless, friends, you're going to take your beatings. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't take some whelps with God's weapon, but friends, this is the greatest weapon in the game. This is the weapon which all other weapons must submit to and bow to. And we have it. So my question is, what are you doing with your weapon? God says this is the sword of the spirit. This is the defender. This is the attacker. This is what Jesus used to attack the temptations of Satan when he was faced with him as a picture for what we ought to do. What are you doing with your weapon? I pray that you are not like 13-year-old Cody Page, going into a battlefield weaponless day after day after day. But you would take advantage of what we do here, what we do on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And every time you open your Bible and your Bible reading plan each day, you are arming for battle. I, this is why, by the way, I, I used to not be able to do my, my reading in the morning 
my prayer time in the morning just because I'm not a morning person, okay? Let me just say that, I'm not. But I have to. I don't like getting armed at night after taking the whelps of the day. (laughs) I like getting my battle armor on early. (laughs) Being prepared to face the things of this world day in and day out. Friends, my prayer is that God would grant us the ability and the grace to be faithful in these ways. That we would do what we ought with our weapon. That we would use our weapon for his glory. That we'd use our weapon as a defense in such things. May God open our eyes to see these areas in our own lives where we have become worldly in our own thinking and living. So that we might be reformed, renewed, and encouraged. And be a soldier in this great spiritual warfare that we face each day. May God grant us his grace to do this as we're encouraged by his word. Would you stand as we join our hearts together in prayer?